This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we are joined by Dr. Fouad Chibib, a Mayo Clinic nephrologist from Jacksonville, Florida, whose specialty is in polycystic kidney disease and we will be discussing the role of genes in polycystic kidney disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Chabib, for joining us today. It is a great pleasure to have you here today. And as I looked at your bio, which I'm gonna share with our audience, I thought I could basically fill up the time telling people about you. But in brief, let me tell people. Dr. Chabib is a nephrologist. He finished his undergraduate and his medical school in Lebanon and then did postdoctoral research in molecular nephrology at Harvard University. He then went on to train in internal medicine at Tufts and then a three-year nephrology fellowship at Mayo. As with all the really smart people, he was then awarded a Mayo Clinic Scholar Program and did research under the mentorship of Dr. Vincent Torres. His clinical and research focus is in patients with polycystic kidney disease. His research examines molecular mechanisms that lead to cyst formation and explores not only the development of cysts, but potential treatment options. His projects actually are critically important to innovative ways of managing these patients, not only locally and nationally, but globally. He is currently leading efforts to build the Polycystic Kidney Center of Excellence in Mayo Clinic, Florida, and he chairs the educational advisory panel at the Polycystic Kidney Foundation. With that, again, welcome. I have to tell you that as a generalist, I think what happens to me is one of three scenarios. First, I have a patient who I thought has had essential hypertension, and slowly the creatinine is rising, so I get the ultrasound, and it shows up with a bunch of cysts. Or the patient comes from an emergency department and they've gotten a CT for some unrelated illness and they say multiple cysts. Or lastly, the patient comes in and says, um, someone in my family has cysts on their kidneys. Do I need to be screened? So help me as a generalist understand more. What is polycystic kidney disease? Is it all genetic? What should I be thinking about and who should I be thinking about screening with genetic testing? Yes, absolutely. You mentioned the most common three scenarios where we diagnose polycystic kidney disease, which is the most common inherited kidney disease. And we can argue it's actually the most common inherited disease in general. So if we add all the rare diseases like cystic fibrosis, Huntington's, and all the different diseases that we're familiar with, if we combine all of them, ADPKD or autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease will be even more common. So it is inherited as an autosomal dominance inheritance. So most of the times there's going to be someone, like you mentioned, a patient who had a family history of polycystic kidney disease. They know that one of their parent or grandparent has been on dialysis because of PKD. 
then their chances would be 50% chance of each of the kids to have the disease. And we can talk about that further. But basically, once they inherit the disease, they form as they're growing. Even sometimes in utero, we can see the kidney cysts. So those are fluid-filled sacs. They kind of grow in number and size as the patient is growing. And typically, the kidney function would be normal. So when they're seeing you as an annual physical exam, their creatinine and their GFR would be normal. They might have or might not have hypertension. And they typically feel normal up till their third, fourth decade. And then you start seeing the decline in kidney function. And for most of the patients, ADPKD patients, they would reach kidney failure in their 40s, 50s, 60s. So about uh, three quarter of these patients would be on dialysis or needing kidney transplantation in their early 60s. There's such a variability in the phenotype and we're gonna talk more about that, of course. But there's more to the ADPKD and other kidney cystic diseases. So also it's important to know all these the differential diagnosis of these patients and kind of that's going to be helpful for the podcast and for the primary care providers to know we see few kidney cysts, what to make of that, and then when do we get genetic testing and how do we make the diagnosis? So we'll definitely touch on all these aspects. So is there a magic number? If I see two cysts or if I see cysts in both kidneys or big cysts, little cysts. I think most of us know that there are simple cysts and then there's complicated cysts and complicated cysts go, oh, that's bad. But with polycystic kidney disease that's inherited, are they generally simple cysts? And if I see a certain number, should I be thinking about autosomal dominant or an inherited syndrome? There are defined criteria for, for patients who have family history of polycystic kidney disease. So if somebody comes to you and they say, well, I need to be screened because either I want to donate a kidney for my father, for for a family member, or I just want to know if I have PKD or not. So if we have a family history of ADPKD, then the criteria are very well defined. And we do have two different types of criteria. One are the ultrasound based and one are the CT scan MRI. The reason why the numbers would be different because the CT scan and MRI are more sensitive. So we will see kidney cysts that are down to two millimeters in diameter versus the ultrasound is only going to pick uh, down to seven millimeters. And now the newer ultrasound may be a little bit better. But basically the numbers on the ultrasound that a lot of times we mentioned these unified ravine pay criteria, those would be if someone has a family history, then having a certain number of kidney cysts would give you a diagnosis with some certainty. So let's say someone who is 30 to 40 years old, if they have two kidney cysts on each kidney, then uh, that's diagnostic of ADPKD. So just as little as that, but it's important to really uh, confirm that it's a typical ADPKD as the family history. And there's now that we're understanding the genetics and we have better understanding of other genes, then that's where it's important to really confirm that it's the typical ADPKD as a family history. And then if they already had a CT scan, let's say either incidental from the emergency department, they had something else, and then they got the, CAT, the CT scan and they have now bilateral kidney cysts. So you don't have to go back and do an ultrasound for screening. What you would do is you would take that CT scan, you look at how many kidney cysts there would be there. And then with the family history, that would be diagnostic. So typically we say a total of 10 or more kidney cysts on the CT scan with the presence of the family history would be a diagnostic for ADPKD. Yes. And then if there's no family history, then this is where it would be, we cannot confirm it 100%. 
and this would be about 10 to 15 percent of the patients they would not have any family history but they would have the typical ADPKD and the reasons for that could be either de novo mutation so when they were in utero kind of early embryos they had the DNA mutation and they developed a typical ADPKD or their family members didn't get diagnosed for different reasons whether it was very benign or they passed away for some other reason and they didn't get the diagnosis. So in these situations where we don't have a confirmed family history, then we would kind of go by the typical uh, phenotype, which would be having enlarged kidneys, so at least 15 uh, centimeters or above, and then we would have at least 10 kidney cysts in each kidney. That would be typical for the ADPKD, and in these situations, we would still require genetic testing to confirm, but that would be kind of likely ADPKD. And you mentioned also another question is, when do we suspect a inherited disease? Because simple cysts are very common. So I'm sure in your practice, when you see patients, they've got a kidney ultrasound or a CT scan abdominal image for whatever reason, and you will see one or two kidney cysts here and there. And typically they would characterize them as simple or complex cysts. So simple cysts, it's benign, non-cancerous. It could be just simple cysts with age. So with as we age, we can form one or two or a few more kidney cysts. And in the absence of other extra renal manifestations or in the absence of a decline of kidney function, usually those don't mean a lot of things, just kind of we watch them. The complex cysts, on the other hand, they are uh, differentiated by their Bosnia classification, which depends if they're complex, meaning if they have any thin septations or classification. So now we monitor these cystic masses in a way to make sure they're not becoming cancerous. And then we monitor their size and then they, they would kind of be followed closely by urology with serial imaging. So in these situations, it's more kind of cancer versus non-cancer and, and monitoring. But let's say somebody has simple cysts, they have relatively normal kidney function, but they have also liver cysts or they have some other extra renal manifestations like other renal masses or some other systemic manifestations like uh, pheochromocytoma or having some tubers, so like tuber sclerosis, having cortical tubers or skin, kind of hypopigmentations or what have you. Then in these situations, it's different type of renal cystic diseases and we need to explore further with genetic testing and with other uh, diagnostics to kind of make sure that we have the right syndrome and the right diagnosis in place. So anytime in my clinic, I see liver cysts and kidney cysts, I kind of start digging a little bit more. I ask them about their uric acid, their magnesium, if there's early onset diabetes, if there's any genitourinary malformations, if there's a decline in kidney function that's not consistent with the cystic burden, then all these kind of start telling me there's uh, maybe a milder cystic burden, but there's another process that is more tubular interstitial disease, meaning there's more scarring of the kidney parenchyma and supporting tissue. And those would be like the old nomenclature would be medullary cystic kidney diseases. And now they're called autosomal dominant tubular interstitial kidney disease. And they're a kind of a series of, of disorders. They are rare, but they could have uh, early onset gout, high uric acid. Their family members would have early onset gout. They would have a family history of CKD and stage kidney disease. And they would sometimes be mislabeled as PKD because they would reach kidney failure. They will have few kidney cysts and then since we didn't know much about them in the past, they might have a family history labeled misdiagnosed or mislabeled as ADPKD. So anytime you see somebody with high, high blood pressure, with a little bit of a change in kidney function, it's always important to look at the kidney parenchyma 
And then if there's a kidney cyst, one, make sure that it's not complex or cancerous mass. And then second is look at other extra-human manifestations where mostly liver cysts usually goes hand in hand with many of these PKD genes. And then if there's any other kidney manifestations like kidney masses or renal cell carcinoma or angiomyolipomas, then kind of start thinking a little bit more. Then if there's other syndromes on the side, kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. And this is where genetic testing would be definitely great in resolving the cases and having the right diagnosis. Great. Well, so it sounds like if I put it relatively simply that as we age, one or two cysts are not uncommon. And so if I've seen an older patient with normal blood pressure, preserved kidney function, and we get an incidental cyst or two, that's nothing to worry about. But finding a large number of cysts in a younger person, especially in the setting of maybe high blood pressure, worsening creatinine, and in particular, if they have a family history of kidney cysts or, my goodness, dialysis in a family member, that would really highlight that I should be looking or thinking about referring that person on for evaluation of polycystic kidney disease, in particular, perhaps a genetically transmitted disease. Absolutely. You're right on point. That's exactly what, what I would do. And that would be great for family doctors to kind of look into that and not just brush it off as simple cyst and, and move on. And because they, they, you would know the patients the most, you know, their family history, what their other family members would have, and then all the other medical issues. And sometimes you, you link them very easily. If you're aware of these other, it's kind of a big spectrum of kidney cyst and not, you know, not all kidney cysts are simple or just ADPKD. There's so many different categories. They are rarer, but it's important to always have 100% accuracy in the diagnosis because then that would change your, your overview of the prognosis, what to expect. So for example, there's one very tricky uh, multicystic kidney disease that is kind of under the realm of the polycystic kidney disease. And it's called the NAJB11 associated diseases, for example. And these patients would kind of have very good kidney function up till sometimes till their 60s. And they would have just few kidney cysts, but they would have a good number. And then all of a sudden, really, they, their kidney function plummets down. And more importantly, they have associated malignancies. So it's important to understand, have the right diagnosis, because then your surveillance will be different for skin, colon, and, and other things. And this year, as the genetic testing is more accessible, as we have more gene panels that are specific to the kidneys or specific to cystic kidneys, they're getting accessible in terms of the cost, in terms of the turnaround time and, and the ability to interpret them correctly, then we should offer the genetic testing a little bit more frequently to definitely have a 100% accurate diagnosis. Now, I know not everybody has the luxury of having an expert on board like you and the ability to refer to a nephrologist with a particular interest in polycystic kidney disease. But as a primary care doctor, if I have somebody who I'm concerned about, is it reasonable to refer them on to a geneticist or a genetic counselor or a nephrologist for at least screening when sort of I've got a concern? Yes. So again, also access to the medical subspecialties is not straightforward or as we can take it for granted at Mayo, we have everything to our availability. So, so it's a great question. So if there's a family history and if there's liver and kidney cysts or kidney cysts with the different, so high suspicion for a genetic disorder, I think we ought to offer the patient this. We have to fight for the patients to get 
to either a medical geneticist or to a nephrologist, like even electronic consultation can, can suffice. And we're looking into providing this type of care for all the patients across the globe. They are trying to get to a PKD or a genetic expert, but they don't have the ability to travel all along or their insurance doesn't cover. So now with the luxury of uh, all the virtual care, but also artificial intelligence, we're, we're working on something called the PKD platform where patients across the United States and even across the world can uh, either them or their providers can upload their images because a lot of times we get so much information from a CT, the CT scan or the abdominal MRI. Then if they upload their demographics and some of the clinical data, that's pretty simple uh, relatively, then we can have a very good opinion, kind of second opinion, and we can provide that to you, for example. Uh, instead, it's like a second opinion, electronic consultation, but also for someone outside of, of Mayo Clinic, they can get this service in a way and then get an expert opinion without having to go through the trouble of traveling. So it's kind of part of the Mayo 2030 vision where we provide the care everywhere and anywhere kind of provide the Mayo expertise. So hopefully as we grow, uh, we develop these services and hopefully uh, very soon we're going to develop that as a research pilot study and we'll, we'll show the utility because I think, as you mentioned, this is it's going to be very important to provide that, to give them that access as easy as possible. Now, you mentioned manifestations outside of the kidney, in particular liver cysts, which I was very familiar with occurring in the setting of polycystic kidney disease and, and also pheochromocytoma and some of the other conditions. Are there other organs or other conditions that you can see associated with polycystic kidney disease that really should raise concern in a provider that, gosh, think about this? Yes. So the most common is the polycystic liver disease. And typically those are also benign uh, liver cysts or fluid filled sacs. A lot of times they can cause a lot of symptoms because they can be very numerous. They can have a lot of mass effect where the patient would be having uh, early satiety, nausea, vomiting, decline in quality of life, as well as uh, maybe weight loss. So but surprisingly with the liver cyst, they would never uh, reach liver failure. So their liver enzymes and their function is completely normal, but it's a lot of symptoms. So there's a small portion, particularly females, they would have, because it's estrogen induced for the liver cyst, where they would have very severe polycystic liver disease, and they would need some sort of intervention. And one of those would be either we go in and remove, uh, we do some cyst aspiration and we, we put a sclerosing agent and then sometimes we need to uh, remove part of the liver, a hepatectomy, partial hepatectomy. Those are big surgeries, but we, we, we have an expertise at Mayo and we've done many of those uh, across the decades and they do very well typically. So that would be polycystic liver disease. There's also just on the polycystic liver disease, another entity where the phenotype is mostly in the liver and then there's just few kidney cysts and those would be called ADPLD, so autosomal dominant polycystic liver disease. It's another set of genes that can cause mostly the liver cyst and, and the minor phenotype would be the kidney cyst. And typically they don't have kidney failure because it's a milder cystic disease. So that's one. The other thing is vascular uh, manifestation. So polycystins, which is the protein encoded by the genes causing ADPKD, so PKD1, PKD2, encode for the polycystin one and two. And those are actually expressed across the, our body. So it's ADPKD, I always teach it's a systemic disease. 
So the vasculature usually has a lot of polycystins and many times you would have somebody who's young with normal kidney function and not even very big kidneys, but they have ADPKD, but they would be hypertensive. So that's because of the vascular phenotype in a way. With that, there's also intracranial aneurysms. So patients with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, they would have higher chances of having these intracranial aneurysms. So typically as a general population, so uh, if we have 100 patients and 100 individuals in a room, there'll be one or two of them that would have intracranial aneurysms that hasn't been diagnosed. So we're kind of walking around with those. But in general with ADPKD, there will be about seven to 8% chance. So, so instead of one to two, it's seven to 8%. And if somebody has a family history of either intracranial aneurysm or a surrogate to that would be a sudden death of unclear etiology, it could be as well be a kind of a brain hemorrhage due to the intracranial aneurysm rupture. So in these individuals who have that family history of intracranial aneurysm, they would be at 20 to 25% chance of having intracranial aneurysms. And that's why it's important to have early diagnosis, correct diagnosis, because then you would uh, screen them accordingly. So if someone is at high risk, uh, such as that having family history, then they would be screened with the brain MRA. And if it's negative, then every five years, we need to repeat that or before a big surgery, like a kidney transplant or a hepatectomy, or if they have a very high risk of jobs, like a, have, being a pilot. So we do recommend to have all these screenings in place for the intracranial aneurysms. A lot of times it's the primary care provider who, who need to direct these patients and know what are their risks so they can be referred accordingly or get the the screening imaging. And then other, other extraneous manifestations in, in PKD, they are rarer. So other uh, cysts like in the pancreas, some other things like that, uh, heart diseases, so valvular, so mitral valve prolapse is, is quite common. We've shown that in a rare situations with PKD, there would be some cardiomyopathies as well, some other valvular diseases, but a lot of times ADPKD or in general, ADPKD, they do very well as compared to the general population. So we've had actually a study done at Mayo through the Olmsted County uh, epidemiology study, and we've shown that in ADPKD patients, they have exactly the same survival as the Minnesota general population. They do very well, and it's likely due to the great care that, that uh, the medical care that's provided in Minnesota, but it's uh, always reassuring when, when I have ADPKD patient, I tell them this, this study so they can be reassured. Because a lot of times, I mean, ADPKD is very peculiar in that sense because it's a chronic inherited disease. So you know that you've inherited, you don't have any uh, symptoms or signs or what have you until your middle life. And then all of a sudden you have to stop and take care of that. So you stop your work, you have to take care of either being on dialysis or trying to get a transplantation. But also you've been biased because you've seen either one of your parents or your grandparents who has either done very well or sometimes poorly, especially older generations, they haven't done very well with dialysis or transplantation. The patient always assumed that, okay, I'm going to do either as good or as bad as my family members. And it's important to guide them and give them an individualized prognosis and tell them your path is always uh, different. So it could be a better path or it could be maybe not as good as, as your parent. Never assume that you're going to have the same thing, whether as outcome from dialysis transplant or as onset of kidney failure, which is a big question that ADPKD patients would have is when, when am I going to reach kidney failure and how do I predict that? 
that's the beauty of, of the advancement that we've had recently at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, and the PKD Center there has, has done tremendous work in individualizing the prognosis. So we have a, a lot of, of biometrics and, and imaging uh, radiomics, so mostly total kidney volumes. So the bigger the kidneys, the worse the severe is, but we didn't only take total kidney volume as a number. We adjusted that for age, and now we have a, something called Mayo Imaging Classification, where the patients are divided into five categories. And if, if they're on the higher categories, they are at risk of rapid progression, meaning that if they have bigger kidneys at younger age, then most likely they have a more severe disease, but we have a way of predicting when they're going to reach kidney failure. So some patients would reach it in their 40s, 50s, some they would reach it in their 70s, and some would never reach kidney failure, which is always a good day when I have somebody with milder PKD because they would assume, okay, I'm going to have dialysis at some point in my life. But then once they realize they have much milder disease, that it's definitely a better prognosis, then they can go on and do their thing. And if they have a worse prognosis, then they know how to rearrange their life around that time of onset because they need to be closer to a bigger medical center. They need to adjust their career and their work and their family around that time. So we've, we've really done quite a bit on that. And we, we're now, as genetic testing is more available and not only through research that takes time and, and not available for everybody. So now that's more clinical tests and it's, it's affordable or covered by insurance with very little out-of-pocket costs. Now we can add the genetic testing. There's also some scoring with ADPKD where it's called pro-PKD score, for example. And it tells us, depending on, on the score, if it's higher, which is based on scoring, which type of mutation you have, the patient has, and what kind of clinical manifestations they've had. If they had urological complications, high blood pressure early on, and then let's say PKD1 truncating, which is the more severe temptation, then they will have a score of, let's say, seven or eight. And that would, would tell them they have a chance of reaching kidney failure before age 60 by kind of a very high chance to, to reach that. So we're complementing imaging, clinical biomarkers, and genetic biomarkers as we move along. So yeah, a lot of excitement uh, from the ADPKD world. It sounds like you've made tremendous advances, and yet here is a primary care doc I'm hearing, get a good history, get a family history, try to put all of the information together as a starting point, because it really sounds like early diagnosis with this group of patients is really, really critical. And I know a lot of your work, as you've sort of looked at the molecular causes and, and some of the things I read your bio that's been really revolutionary is looking at what can we target? How can we change the course of disease? And while the primary purpose of this talk is not to talk about in detail some of the drugs and things, I'd like for you to share with our audience what you've learned. What are some of the new advances that we hope will change the course of events for these patients since we're not changing genes yet in this condition? What can we do to change how many people go on to chronic kidney disease or dialysis or potentially early death. Yes, absolutely. So a lot of advancements. So historically with ADPKD, it used to be kind of a grim diagnosis. They would say, okay, you have ADPKD, come back when you're in advanced chronic kidney disease, we'll put you on dialysis, you'll do well, but we don't have anything to prevent or slow down the disease progression. So 
our goal is hopefully we get to a cure where everybody gets a gene therapy and then all the defect in the polycystins and other genes are reversed and then they don't have to even be never on dialysis or even reach CKD. But we haven't been there yet because PKD1 and the polycystin one is very complex protein with very big protein. So hopefully in the future, cures and genetic therapies would be available. But right now we have an approved treatment that can slow the disease progression of ADPKD. And you're right on point that we need to diagnose ADPKD early and, and understand their risk of progression so we can put them on, on this FDA approved drug, which is intended to slow the disease progression. So this medication is called Tolvaptan, and it actually was the early studies were done at Mayo Clinic as well, where Dr. Torres and his group has tried Evaptan on, on the PKD animal models, and they showed that it slows down the cyst progression, so they don't grow as fast, and then they don't reach kidney failure as early. So it's kind of putting a break on the process. And then that got translated into very large clinical trials, and now it's the first FDA-approved drug. So it works through blocking the vasopressin receptor. So it's kind of uh, also philosophically, it's interesting because vasopressin is the thirst hormone. And by evolution, we are able to stay as a terrestrial human beings because we can concentrate our urine. So if we don't have that vasopressin hormone, we cannot concentrate our urine and we can get dehydrated and we cannot kind of stay intact as, as terrestrial human beings. So vasopressin is, causes kidney cysts. So that thirst hormone is the stimulator that goes to the kidney and concentrate the urine, but also it forms increased cyclic AMP, so kind of intracellular pathways that, that are not normal when you have a defect in the polycystins. So the vasopressin kind of stimulate that cell, and then you'll have kind of a benign neoplasm because then those cells will proliferate and they will grow, and then they will secrete fluids. And this is how your cysts are forming, like many, many hundreds of cysts are forming. So those are benign cysts, but they're filled with fluids and they are kind of destroying the parenchyma around them and they would reach kidney failure. So when you block the V2 receptor through the tolvaptan or other vaptan, then you lower the cyclic MP, you lower all the downstream effect, and then the kidney cysts are not growing as fast. And there's a lot of studies showing that it's a cumulative effect of this medication. So the earlier we start, the, the more we get out of the medication. So we say every four years of treatment, we delay the onset of kidney failure by one year which for some, maybe it sounds not a lot, but for patients and for nephrologists, for patients who have CKD and PKD, and for nephrologists, one year off dialysis is a long time. And hopefully if they are diagnosed early, they start the medication early, then they get several years off dialysis, maybe five, six, eight years, depending on, on when they start. But again, any medication has side effects. So since it's blocks the third, it's blocks the B2 receptor, then most of these many uh, patients while on the medication would be very thirsty and drinking a lot of fluids, six to seven liters of fluids and the same as urine output. So can be challenging for some patients. And hopefully actually we're gonna ongo a clinical trial that we, uh, it's one finding that by serendipity, we found it uh, in our lab and we're gonna start a clinical trial to block the side effect of the treatment. So hopefully you'll hear also some more news and maybe another podcast, we can talk about the results of, of the clinical trial we're gonna be starting, so. Well, Fouad, I want to thank you so much for coming onto our podcast today. This has been fascinating. I think we all as primary care docs probably see 
and probably don't recognize polycystic kidney disease. And uh, for me, I think the take home messages are remember to get your family history, find out why mom or dad was on dialysis. Don't assume it was diabetes. Don't ignore those CT scans, those incidental cysts. Pay attention. And I think your point about genetics, getting genetic testing being a lot more cost-effective now to identify these individuals early. And it is telling. I, I vaguely remember that comment about cerebral aneurysms being much more common, berry aneurysms in these patients with known polycystic kidney disease as being potentially a catastrophic event. You don't want to find out that your patient's in the hospital after a stroke and you had seen them with a bunch of cysts that you had said, oh, that's just cystic kidneys. They're simple. Don't worry about them. Any last few comments on things that a primary care doctor shouldn't miss that I didn't touch on before we wrap up for the day? I think we, we did a lot of take-home messages and we, we covered it nicely. Anytime you have any questions or concerns, I think it's important to kind of bring it either to the subspecialist or you have now my name and email. I, I'll be happy to answer anyone. You can just Google me, Fuad Shabib, and then just send me an email about kidney cysts and Hopefully we can answer any of your concerns. So I'll offer that. Call a, call a friend is always a good thing. So, All right. Well, we've been talking about polycystic kidney disease with our guest, Dr. Fawad Shabib, who is actually, I would consider one of the leading experts or certainly leading our efforts to build a polycystic kidney center of excellence at Mayo Clinic in Florida. Thank you for your time, Dr. Shabib. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. See, your genes and actually the genes of your parents really do matter. Thank you. Thank you.